0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. In our last episode, we talked about how the British used the lame excuse that they cannot allow Jewish refugees to come to Palestine for fear that there might be spies among them. We highlighted that the Americans applied the very same ridiculous excuse to keep Jews out of America when they desperately need to escape the ovens of Europe during World War II. In the summer of nineteen forty two, the SS Dringholm set sail carrying hundreds of desperate refugees on route from New York en route to New York City from Sweden. Among them was Herbert Karl Friedrich Barr. He was a twenty eight year old from Germany, was seeking entry into the United States. When he arrived, he told the very same story as his fellow passengers, that he was a victim of persecution. And he wanted asylum from Nazi violence. However, yeah, 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 yeah. during a meticulous interview process that involved five separate government agencies, Barr's story began to unravel. Days later, the FBI accused Barr of being a Nazi spy They said that the Gestapo had given him $7,000 to steal American industrial secrets that he posed as a refugee in order to sneak into the country unannounced. His case was rushed to trial, and the prosecution called for death penalty. What Barr did not know, and perhaps he didn't even mind, was that his story would be used as an excuse, underline excuse, to deny visas to hundreds of thousands of Jews fleeing the horrors of the Nazi regime. But in the court of public opinion, the story of a spy disguised as a refugee was just too scandalous to resist. America was already months into the largest war the world had ever seen. And as we all know, in February 1942, FDR ordered the internment of tens of thousands of Japanese Americans. There was fear everywhere. And he used it to his great advantage. I'm talking about FDR and his cabinet. Every day, the headlines announced new... Nazi conquests. World War II prompted the largest displacement of human beings the world had ever seen, although today's refugee crisis, which pales, is also inexcusable and an embarrassment. And so let's temporarily pivot from history to more current times. Chancellor Angela Merkel defended her government's refugee policy in 2016. That was just days after asylum seekers carried out three attacks across Germany which renewed the national debate in Germany over accepting these refugees, which they'd accepted one year before, over one million people fleeing civil war in Syria and unrest elsewhere. Merkel quoted a fundamental principle which was enshrined in our country's constitution. Human dignity shall be inviolable. And Chancellor Merkel added, these principles mean we will give asylum to those who are politically persecuted. We will give protection to those who flee war an expulsion, according to the Geneva Refugee Convention. Last summer, as Europe's refugee crisis escalated dramatically, Angela Merkel received plaudits for her leadership in extending a welcoming hand to those fleeing conflict and misery. Now the German Chancellor is under fire for a situation that many say is out of control, not least increasingly vocal critics within her own Christian Democratic Party. Chancellor Merkel's humanitarian approach is quite amazing when you think about the fact That there was clear evidence that there were terrorists among the refugees that wreaked havoc in Germany, yet she pressed on to be humanitarian. During World War II, there was zero evidence of Jewish espionage, and yet American England refused to show any humanitarian relief, lest officially they would be allowing in spies into their countries. This was not so easy for Merkel to do, and she acknowledged that there could be terrorists that might have infiltrated. And she was aware of the fact there was unrest in Germany because of these asylum seekers. But still, she felt this was her duty, and that the duty of the rest of Europe, to give asylum to those who needed refuge. So what happened was, during World War II, there were efforts made to spread fears of supposed, quote-unquote, a fifth column of spies and saboteurs that had infiltrated America. United States Attorney General Francis Biddle said in 1942 that, quote, Every precaution must be taken to prevent enemy agents slipping across our borders. We already have had experience with them, and we know them to be well trained and clever. These suspicions were not just trained or directed at ethnic Germans. Quote, all foreigners became suspect. Jews were not considered immune. Close quote. The American ambassador to France, William Bullitt, whose last name poses an unfortunate yet appropriate source for rhyming ridicule, made the unsubstantiated statement that France fell in 1940 partly because of a vast network of spying refugees. And he said, quote, more than one half the spies captured doing actual military spy work against the French army were refugees from Germany. And he said, do you believe that there are no Nazi and communist agents of this sort in America? These suspicions steeped into American immigration policy In late 1938, American consulates were flooded with over 125,000 applications for visas, many of them coming from Germany and the annexed territories of Austria. But the national quotas for German and Austrian immigrants had been set firmly at 27,000. That would be 26,000 from from Germany and about 1,000 from Austria. But even this minimal number was never fulfilled, as we're going to detail. The mood in America was very anti-immigration. It was also very anti-Semitic. It was felt that there were more than enough Americans that could not be taken care of, and there was certainly no need for an influx of foreigners. Furthermore, besides the effect of the Depression, where people by the millions were out of work, there was a backlash from World War I, where nearly 117,000 U.S. troops died in Europe, and over 200,000 were wounded and maimed. The feeling that America should adopt, which actually it did, was a policy and an attitude of isolationism, and they did not wish at any expense to get embroiled in European affairs. FDR Secretary of State was Corden Hull, who was in his seventies. In those days that was pretty old. He was not a forceful or an effective man, a southerner from Tennessee who was not attuned to the needs of foreigners, suffering from persecution. The Quota Act of the United States government was enacted under Klu Klux Klan influence, which was quite substantial then. At that time, when it was enacted in the late 1920s, the Klan had over 4 million members. In 2018, the Washington Post reported that by 1930, the KKK, while its, quote, membership remained semi-secret, claimed that it had 11 governors, 16 senators, and as many as 75 congressmen, roughly split between the Republican and the Democratic Party, the quota act was a death sentence for a European Jewry. The amount of European permitted visas was pegged to less than three percent of the number of immigrants that arrived in the country in the United States in 1910, which was the lowest year of immigration. So let's say 10,000 came in from Finland, so they were allowed in. Allow in. 3% of that to come in, which would be the lowest year. This meant 300 from Romania, 6,000 from Poland, and 26,000 26, from Germany. This, as they were threatened with death and torture. But even with these restrictions, the Immigration Act did allow for some 150,000 to arrive. But visa officials, don't forget this was controlled by Breckridge long in the State Department, which was rapidly anti-Semitic, he sealed all the doors, and he gave instructions to his embassies to delay and delay and delay, and there were lines that went on for blocks outside the embassies, even though there was a curfew. And the visa officials were instructed to strictly enforce the clause, me, the clause that forbade the entry of someone who could be perceived to be a quote-unquote public charge. Prior to this quota, over 900,000 immigrants had come to the United States every year from Europe. Now, with the Depression, there was fear that foreigners who were desperate would work for virtually nothing, forcing Americans out of jobs. So, America had to make a decision Do we allow those in Europe to die and not give them sanctuary, or do we be careful to maintain the jobs for our own workforce? It was a decision that had to be made, and they made an unequivocal decision. Uh, let's hold on to our jobs and not allow those from Europe to be saved life. Immigration with these restrictions was allowed to be 150,000, but it plummeted to 35,000. Jews in Europe protested, but the State Department replied that it was essential to maintain all of the limitations to prevent criminals, communists, spies, and anarchists from flooding the borders. How similar does this sound to the same excuse that the British offered now to allow desperate Jewish refugees into Palestine. And that was but one clause that Jews shouldn't be a public charge in America or any foreigner came. They could always say that you're not allowed in, even though the quota will allow numbers to come in. But if they throws a threat of being a public charge, they will not be allowed in. And of course, the doctors, the accountants, the attorneys of Germany placed a great threat of being a public charge. These are people that would be gainfully employed. They were gainfully employed. And they'd be happy to do any work, even sleep even sweeping the streets. Yet there's a threat of a public charge, and the State Department refused them entrance into America. And there was another clause, aside from being a public charge. The other obstacle was that Jews, and I'm not going to detail every one of these clauses, that no one is allowed to come to America if their passage was paid by either a corporation or an organization. This prohibition was created to prevent the importation of slaves whose passage would be paid by corporations, and then the passengers would be, have to pay for their their fare indefinitely. I mean, this happened obviously, for the most classic slaves, and even for sex slaves of our day. There's a fear that if they're paid for by a corporation, then they'll be indentured forever. The passage of Jews to America was done by aid organizations, for the Nazis saw to it that the Jews did not have enough money for their own passage. One billion Reichmarks had brought the German Jewry to which the Jewish community had been penalized to pay for Kristallnacht, already brought the indigent Jews of Germany to suffocating poverty. The State Department used this catch-22 clause to refuse visas to Jews. Hitler was well aware of the American policy and accused the U.S. of preventing Jews that are unwanted from entering its borders. Sauderic condemned Germany for disposing of that which it itself, which the United States would not accept. FDR's position was that the letter of the law must be upheld, and he was not about to convince Congress to alter the law. But the brutal irony is that the law did not have to be changed. FDR could have simply given the directive to use a liberal interpretation of the, quote, public charge clause, just as President Hoover gave the instruction to implement a strict, literal interpretation of the public charge clause, which had all been ignored beforehand. By law, 26,000 Jews had come, could have come to the United States each year from Germany, but during the 1930s, only 6,500 Jews were allowed in. Immigration restrictions actually tightened as the refugee crisis worsened. Wartime measures demanded special scrutiny of anyone with relatives in Nazi territories, even those whose relatives were in concentration camps. At a press conference, President Roosevelt repeated the unproven claims from his advisors that some Jewish refugees had been coerced to spy for the Nazis, and the president said, quote, not all of them are voluntary spies. is rather a horrible story. But in some of the other countries that refugees out of Germany have gone to, especially Jewish refugees, they found a number of definitely proven spies. Close quote. This is blatantly false, but the president shamelessly said it. As historian Deborah Lipstadt points out, the State Department could not cite a single instance of forced espionage, not a single one. But these voices were drowned out in the name of national security. Government agencies like the State Department used spy trials as fuel for their argument against accepting refugees. But late in the war, government whistleblowers began to question this approach. In 1944, the Treasury Department that was headed by Henry Morgenthau, Jr., I think we've had occasion to speak about already, released a damning report initialed by lawyer Randolph-Paul. There were four hard-nosed Christian lawyers. One was Randolph-Paul. One was Josiah Dubois, who later became a law professor in some university. Uh, I don't remember the other two names. Anyways, this is what lawyer Randolph-Paul said, quote, I am convinced on the basis of the information which is available to me that certain officials in our State Department, which is charged with carrying out this policy, have been guilty not only of gross procrastination and willful failure to act, but even of willful attempts to prevent action from being taken to rescue Jews from Hitler. According to historian Deborah Lipstadt, the State Department's attitude was shaped by wartime paranoia and downright bigotry. All those things they feed into this fear of the foreigner. It was only thanks to Treasury Secretary's report, that of Henry Morgenthau, Jr., and thanks to those strong-minded, courageous Christian lawyers that worked for him, that Roosevelt finally formed a new body, the War Refugee Board, that was funded by American Jewry, that belatedly accepted tens of thousands of Jewish refugees. But by that time, millions of Jews had already been murdered in Europe, and Teller from Jerusalem may yet deal with that clandestine Treasury report, commissioned by... Treasury Secretary Henry Morgan, Jr., and he took that report to FDR and he said to him, either you stop this or I'm going to go to Congress. And that day, the War Refugee Board was born. Now, this long tangent was only done to highlight that the lame excuse that the British offered that Axis spies could have infiltrated the refugees and have come as spies was directly implicit in the inability to save hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees that could have found sanctuary in Palestine over the ovens of Europe. And the United States government basically employed the very, very same policy to keep the Jews out of America at the time that they so desperately needed refuge. We pick up our story. Accordingly, for the first 19 months of the first 39 months of the war, the British did not allow any Jewish immigration at all into Palestine. Their policy was not fully successful, as. Trickles managed to come in clandestinely. The British concluded that force was indicated, and ships from the Royal Navy unceremoniously attacked the unarmed, barely seaworthy immigrant boats. They commandeered the ships, and the British compelled the Palestinian boats, the boats that were that were bound for Pal- for Palestine, to change course, forced them either to faraway Mauritius, or to Cyprus, which was heartbreakingly close to Palestine. In a very tragic. Coincidence, as author Daniel Gordas points out, both the British and the Germans were placing Jews into camps behind barbed wire. This is only going to come to an end with the creation of a sovereign state of Israel in 1948. But, despite all this, Jews in Palestine volunteered for the British army, as Hajime al-Husseini, in response, proposed a Muslim army to aid the Nazis. The British trained Jewish fighters who would contribute handsomely to the British war effort. In 1943, the British Legion comprised of men from the Yishuv, the Jewish settlement, fought for the British in North Africa and in Italy. Almost 30,000 Jews from Palestine served in the British army, and in the process, the British had given training to many of these men who would later serve in the Haganah. What else is happening in the world? As in 1941, as the Einsatz group and the Special Death Units commenced the final solution, eliminating entire Jewish communities in just hours, in Ukraine, 500,000 Jews were immediately annihilated without a single remembrance of them. In Yad Vashem, there is a hall where they have tried to compile the names of all of the victims. And you see their loose leaves, or as they called them, Brooklyn binders, comprised of thousands and thousands of names. The hall can, has a room for six million names. Clearly, a third of the room is empty. Like I said, half a million of Ukrainian Jews were just eliminated, entire villages and cities of, of their Jews, not a trace of memory. As this is going on, the Haganah strike force, Haganah creates a strike force called the Palmach. That's a acronym for Plugot Machatz, which means strike force. Now initially the Palmach was intended to be an elite unit to prepare for a German invasion, and it attracted the best and the brightest in Palestine. The fear of a German invasion was a very real fear, because uh, Rommel, the Desert Fox—a name the British had given him—had already well infiltrated so deep into Africa. They were already in El Alamein, which is basically just a railroad station, deep in the middle of Egypt. In 1942 to 1943, the British helped train them. The, I'm talking about the Palmach. It started with just 100 men, but by May of 1948, it had already 2,100 well-trained fighters. And there were, so to speak, in the reserves, another 1,000 that could be drafted to this unit, and they formed the highest echelons of Israel's military. So we're going to pick up next time with where Rummel was in Egypt, and how the Palmach is getting ready to deal with them and protect themselves, realizing they cannot hope and bank on assistance from the British. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of Ul teleproducts, Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget. You can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.